Maura Meltzer-Cohen has provided legal services for persons arrested in the course of justice struggles, including indigenous communities and social movement groups. I mean, it doesn't just contribute to greenhouse gases, right? I think that might be sort of the thing that everyone is uh, most aware of. But like the, the pollution, the environmental degradation, the mutagenic potential of all of the uh, radioactive dust that is created by um, different kinds of mining. These are all consequences of colonial modes of resource extraction uh, that probably would not be happening if anyone bothered to actually follow the aspirational uh, international law norms that are being set forth in like, for example, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, that is not really something that has been provided for in American law. There are these consultation requirements that are, A, very minimal, and B, often ignored. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest installment of the Plutopia News Network's podcast. Our guest today is Moira Meltzer-Cohen. She's an educator, attorney, and abolitionist serving overlapping communities of activists, queers, and prisoners. Moira provides criminal defense, particularly for people who are arrested in the course of justice struggles. And she uh, represents witnesses before federal grand juries. She advocates for those seeking gender affirming and other necessary, but often withheld healthcare while in prison. So welcome. Hi, how are you doing? We're doing great. Happy to have you on board with us today. My pleasure. So how, how, how do your clients find you or how do you find them? I think they mostly find me. Um, I, I think at this point, I just know all of the, all <laughs> of the people who are out there protesting or I know enough of them that they tell their friends. And then when they get arrested, uh, invariably at some point, uh, NYPD steps in, uses mass arrest as a form of crowd control, and then I get a lot of phone calls. Are you part of a, a larger group of attorneys that uh, typically give this kind of representation? Yes, I, I started doing this kind of work as part of the National Lawyers Guild, and we have a pretty well-developed infrastructure. Um, so people come to me through the NLG or at this point, just because they have my phone number. Um, but we provide pro bono representation to people who are arrested uh, in the course of First Amendment protected activity. This reminds me a little bit of um, reading on Twitter during the... Um... The, the Muslim, when the Muslim ban came in, there were a bunch of lawyers who posted, I have a superpower. I can go and fight this legally. And they were rushing off to the airport. Yeah. And I thought it was just so cool. You know, I had not thought of being a lawyer as a superpower before. I don't think of it as being a superpower. <laughs> uh, I think being a lawyer is a, a nice method of harm reduction. And you can put it in the service of people who need it. And as long as you're taking direction from them, uh, I think it's uh, it can be a useful tool. And I recall you saying that uh, that one of your goals would be to remove the need to have have to do your job, basically. Oh, I would love that. I would I would love to see the the American legal system evaporate as if by magic well that would be great I, I, <laughs> until what, then i'll keep doing my job well one of the things i was wondering about is whether uh, like what is from your perspective and i know you know you're in a particular locale uh the state of of fair justice system uh in the u.s are is there an erosion of that? Have some of the judicial appointments affected that? I mean, certainly, I, I think yes. But I also think, I, I mean, you're asking what I I think might be two different questions, actually. Um, first of all, yes, 
right now we are seeing um, a particularly hard swing to the right um, in terms of judicial appointments and in terms of the kinds of lobbying that are happening and the kinds of bills that are being introduced to suppress dissent and, and in fact, to criminalize dissent um, and, you know, to criminalize particular kinds of identities, particular political identities, um, <clears throat> criticism of particular political identities. Um, absolutely, we're seeing um, some diminishment in, in sort of what we could broadly call protected rights. But also, I think the structure itself is, it's oppressive, right? Like, I will certainly do my utmost to uphold the Constitution. The Constitution is the document we have. The Constitution is the set of promises that the state has made in writing. And so we can call upon that piece of writing to hold the state to its promises. I wish they'd made better promises. Um, and the fact that we have, that it's possible for, um, for a political rightward swing to make this much difference is significant of the system in itself, right? We have these nine unelected God Kings at the Supreme Court and depending on who's in charge when they get appointed, we can either have um, a an unbelievable nightmare world or we can have a slightly less unbelievable nightmare world, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I don't mean to be cynical. Um, but but the fact is that if you if you have a a system that relies on the lifetime appointments of anyone, you have to be prepared for those to be the worst people that they could be. It's interesting about that because the con when I read a con I've lived in a couple of countries that had modern constitutions, the Ireland being one, and. I've come to read constitutions as kind of like security documents that have a threat model. <laughs> and the threat model in the American constitution is so much about not having a king. The president is not a king. Also, also fear of foreign influence is a very big threat model in, in, in the American constitution. And yet they've actually provided a system wherein the Supreme Court can be, as you say, kings. And is is you know I think they they didn't notice it. You know, they sort of didn't notice they were doing that because they were so focused on the president. I think. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the other thing is that all of those federal branches, at least for a long time, uh, in in the formative eras, were consolidating power to the federal government. Right, and, and so. You know, I was I was listening to some of the Supreme Court hearing yesterday, and and I'm not a, I'm obviously no sort of expert on the law or on the Constitution, but it struck me as a possibility that one reason they didn't specifically enumerate the presidency of the United States as an officer of the United States is that it never occurred to them to imagine a president that led an insurrection. <laughs> because uh, kind of by definition, you kind of expect the president to be on the side of the country. Well, there you go. <laughs> I've terrified her into silence. There's always there's always a first time, huh? So, well, let me ask a question. You talked about the Constitution as having shortcomings. What key thing would you most want to change if you were rewriting the Constitution today or if you were part of a group doing that? Um, I regret to inform you <laughs> that I would not be caught doing that. Um, I, I'm an anarchist, <laughs> so I, I prefer a no state solution, uh, 
like in general. Um, I guess if I were going to rewrite a constitution, it would it would be. Uh, I think it would be very concerned with. allowing people to resolve their own problems. Um, also, I, I think the, the colonial intrusion is sort of the predicate, right? Gesundheit. Uh, <laughs> the, the predicate um, disruption and I'm not sure any colonial constitution is can can be written in a way that sets anybody up for justice in a settler colonial state. Well, what is the best way to contain power or is it just a matter of having power so distributed that it's never concentrated in the way it is now at, at the federal level? I, I think that's probably part of it. Yeah. Well, we have a governor here in Texas that uh, com completely uh, wants to rewrite the Constitution and everything else and has been sending uh, what he considers illegal immigrants up to New York. Have you encountered any of these poor victims that have been forced out of Texas and into New York City? Yes. Yeah. I mean, not in my not in my legal work. I don't do immigration law. Um but yes, there's all kinds of um, stuff going on. I know that um, they're holding people in basically refugee camps at decommissioned airfields. Um, I mean, it's it's not a great situation. Um, and it's pretty evident that the city would prefer not to make good on their obligations, on its obligations to to folks. Um, I'm not super involved in, in, uh, that advocacy, but I, you know, it, it is, um, a salient issue. And there are a lot of people in my community who are providing aid, um, who are trying to, you know, offer support and do advocacy. What are some of the recent cases that you've been working on? Um, well, there's a lot of repression and retaliation, uh, repression of and retaliation against uh, Palestine solidarity right now. Um, in New York, that's taking, I think, a, a somewhat different form and a somewhat less um, frightening form than it is el elsewhere. <clears throat> but there's sort of a dance that, that we do uh, where people have a protest, NYPD arrests them, we go to court, then everybody goes home, we do it all again. So I'm spending quite a lot of time uh, just shepherding people through the criminal system, um, through the, to be clear, the lowest stakes part of the criminal legal system in New York. You know, the, the thing you're talking about with uh, swing to the right and cracking down on protests is happening here in Britain too. Mm -hmm. uh, I think my sense is that it's the more extreme climate change people who are getting the worst of it, but I'm not really sure. Um, one of the big concerns is, as you may know, London has more CCTV cameras than anywhere outside of China. And um, facial recognition looks like a terrifying game changer for this. And I can't remember if it was the US or the UK that I, in the last couple of days, I saw a suggestion that the police might, out, or the police or the government might outlaw wearing masks at protests. I mean, that's definitely been a an issue in the United States. I don't know if that's, um, I don't know if you saw that with respect to the US or the UK, but um, there are anti-mask laws all over the United States, they initially were uh, were passed and implemented as part of um, anti-Klan uh, legislation. Right, I, I did know that, um, which is why I think it might have been this country because I remember being really shocked by it. 
whereas I did know in the States that there were such laws. And I think I think in some other countries, I think France springs to mind maybe that it, that it was an anti-Muslim thing. My, I know that France has had a lot of really Islamophobic laws. Yeah. Um, so but maybe. I mean, the thing is, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. People forget that, you know, and sort of outlawing wearing masks in protest basically means that anybody who's clinically vulnerable can't protest. Yes. I mean, I, I remember that this all um, has to get implemented on the ground. Right. And, you know, um, it's also not clear that this stuff will pass. There is, um, if you give me a second, I'm going to take a look. We have a sort of a dissent chilling uh, bill tracker. Let me see if I can find Ooh, Where it. is that? Uh, give me one second and I'll try to find it for you. We should put a link to that. Sure. It it's sounds like some of the privacy things we used to have. I'll put it in the chat for you. It's the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law. And there's a U.S. protest law. And there's, you know, the mask bills are but one of many, many anti-dissent uh, bills that are <clears throat> being proposed, written. A lot of these are... Um, drafted by Alec. Um, oh, yeah. The the um, very right-wing think tank, isn't it? Yeah. There's it, a lot of industry members that are kind of horrifying that they're members. Yes. Um, but um, it's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, and, and they have proposed some truly bone-chilling uh, pieces of legislation, including legislation that proposes to make it lawful to drive your car through a crowd of protesters if if you feel frightened. Um, you know, all kinds of all the critical infrastructure, so-called critical infrastructure bills that um, make it a an act of domestic terrorism to in any way interfere with what's being called critical infrastructure. Um, those are all, you know, derived from Alec. That sounds a little bit. That sounds a little bit like the. There was a new protest law in Britain last year that, um, if you, I, I don't think the word they used is annoyance, but it's something like that. If if you you know if you disrupt somebody somebody, you can be arrested. And you know one of the the, the eco people one of the standard tactics is to block streets and to to clog up bridges and things like that. And so that that was really aimed at them. Yeah. I think we're seeing, a, and, and we have been for many years, I would say it really started, um, it, it got a real boost right around the time of um, the no dapple uh, protests at Standing Rock. Uh, I'm ignorant of that. The, well, there was a an oil pipeline that has now been built and is leaking um, called the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's going oh, through. okay. Yeah. Um, and the uh, Standing Rock Sioux put out a call, or at least some people on that reservation put out a call, and it ended up being the largest gathering of Indigenous people, um, I think, ever. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, showed up to to assist um, and to protect the protect the water, and. Ultimately, um, the pipeline did end up getting built. The pipeline, as anticipated, has been leaking uh, and is, um, you know, going to devastate drinking water for not just Indigenous people, but people all over that part of the country. Um, in any event, during those protests, um, we started to see a lot of legislation being drafted and put out there that involved this language of critical infrastructure. So, um, and critical infrastructure is sort of being defined as oil pipelines, anything involving energy, really, right? Any So it's all of these extractivist um, giant multinational corporations in league with right-wing uh, governments are, are looking to... Um, 
make it more difficult to oppose um, this kind of resource extraction. This might be a good point for you to talk a little bit about land back. Can you tell us about land back? Um, I don't think I'm actually the right person to to talk about um, land back. Um, I do encourage people to. I do encourage people to go look at landback.org and check out the work of Indian Collective. Um, I do encourage people to. Um, there's a. Uh, there are some voluntary land taxes that you can participate in. If you own land, you can pay a voluntary tax to uh, the indigenous people of wherever it is that you are, that you have settled. Um, I think there are a lot of um, land back initiatives that involve returning, uh, you know, control and, um, Sorry, there is a word that I'm blanking on. Uh, basically restoring control of the land and land use to indigenous people and, um, you know, really listening to and relying on <clears throat> um, the traditional environmental knowledge of indigenous people to um, manage the land um, in a way that does not require displacement of people who currently live there, um, which I think is a big fear of, of land back among settlers, right, is that um, they will be violently displaced from their homes, which is really not, really not on the table. Um, and that is not what is meant and not, not part of the plan. Um, but uh, I, I think there are a lot of ways of restoring uh, land use and, and control to uh, indigenous people um, that have already been happening um, and, and that are, you know, with really positive results, um, positive results, not just for indigenous people, but like for environmental health generally. Um, There are international law norms around free prior and informed consent um, of indigenous people to various land uses that are absolutely not honored um, under the legal regime of the United States. Um, that I think if they were, we would have um, fewer really devastating um devastating situations with respect to things like wildfires and, um, you know, the uh, air and water quality, drought. Um, there are all kinds of uh, ways in which resource extraction uh, is, I mean, it doesn't just contribute to greenhouse gases, right? I think that's might be sort of the thing that everyone is uh, most aware of, but like the the pollution, the environmental degradation, the um, the mutagenic potential of all of the uh, radioactive dust that is created by um, different kinds of mining, right? Um, you know, these are all um, these are all consequences of colonial modes of resource extraction uh, that probably would not be happening if anyone bothered to actually follow the aspirational uh, international law norms that are being set forth in, like, for example, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, that is not really something that has been provided for in American law. There are these consultation requirements that are a, very minimal, and B, often ignored, essentially. So, um, yeah, the law is not functioning to protect. Well, it sounds like the, the, the law 
the law is more protective of the right of extraction than the impact of extraction. Very much. Yeah. Uh, are you aware of any successes uh, that are not consistent with that? I mean, I'm, I was just thinking a minute ago about this thing in Oklahoma where uh, some of the tribes apparently had won a concession that they had actually owned quite a bit of the land in, in Oklahoma or had rights to it. But I've never heard that, that that actually went anywhere. I mean, it's like the court made a decision and then what? Well, okay. I can tell you sort of what that, what that means. Um, the, the question in that case really had to do with jurisdiction. It doesn't have to do with who has control over the land as far as using the land. The question was, is this part of Oklahoma what is considered Indian country? And Indian country has a statutory definition. And that definition implicates um, who does or does not have authority to prosecute criminal offenses. So when Gorsuch wrote that opinion um, in McGirt a couple of years ago, and it was kind of a beautiful, very surprising, uh, surprisingly beautiful opinion um, that really acknowledged the the forced removal of uh, indigenous people in this on this continent in a way that I don't think is I, that might have been unique in Supreme Court opinions, um, which are typically extremely racist and extremely paternalistic. Um, uh, specifically with respect to Indian law. Um, the opinion, what the holding was, was that the um, the reservation had not been diminished. And so the boundaries of that reservation were intact. Um, and what that means is that a large part of Oklahoma that had been treated as Oklahoma state territory was in fact not. But the implication of that is that it means that a different party has jurisdiction over criminal offenses and, and I guess civil issues as well. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, that the tribal nation necessarily gets to go like use that land in a particular way. Yeah, I did. I, I totally did misunderstand that decision. Well, it's um, a very confusing. I mean, it's a very confusing idea, right? Uh, when, um, and it's a very confusing idea because I think when we talk about land, we're often talking about we, we assume ownership, individual titled ownership in a particular way that get confers certain rights upon the owner. And those rights are typically the rights to use the land in whatever way you want to. Um, in this case, <clears throat> when we're talking about so-called Indian country, right? Like it's all Indian country, but <laughs> the statutorily defined Indian country um, is not necessarily the the rights and the concept of ownership um, are not necessarily the same um, because what what is being um, the character of the land is um, not just a piece of land that is being held by an individual it is being held typically by the federal government in trust for indigenous people pursuant to some law or treaty. Um, and so we're not, it is a very complicated uh, area of law. And when we talk about like land ownership, it's just not referring to the same sort of bundle of rights that we're talking about when we're talking about like, you know, who owns that house. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of uh, research involving uh, what used to be called Indian Territory. It's now called Oklahoma. My mother was was Choctaw, my father part 
Cherokee. So I have been researching our ancestry, and I ran across the fact that the federal government uh, took over determining who was Choctaw or Cherokee or any of the tribes in Oklahoma. It, uh, initially, the Choctaw Nation would have their role, what they call the roles, and they were tracking who was a member of the Choctaw Nation. And all of a sudden, the federal government said, no, you can't do this. We're going to do that through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and such agencies. And it's only in recent uh, decades that the nations have been able to resume their own roles rather than having the federal government say, well, you're Indian and you're not. And uh, anytime you have the federal government getting involved with indigenous uh, rights or anything involving indigenous people, it seems to be a matter of them saying, well, we know better than you. Um, well, one of the things about indigenous sovereignty, at least under the U.S. colonial legal regime, is that um, tribal nations that are recognized as tribal nations do get to define their own membership. Um, although <clears throat> um, that initial hurdle of being federally recognized as a tribal nation is not um, insignificant. Um, I do think that there are, there are a lot of good um, examples of, of land back, um, not just land transfers, although that is, certainly part of it, um, but um, examples of, um, you know, real serious, earnest collaboration between, for example, the National Park Service um, and tribal nations. Um, and as I, as I mentioned before, um, <clears throat> the uh, voluntary land taxes, there are a lot of examples of people um, using land trusts, um, which is a, a nice creative use of law uh, to protect indigenous land and, and indigenous um, tribal eco ecological knowledge. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is certainly something that I would encourage people to look up and to donate to um, if there's, um, you know, there's, there are, indigenous people all over the continent. They, they aren't, um, they aren't gone. And there's people working all over to, um, to restore, um, restore power. Well, and protect rights, I guess. That is yeah. uh, one other thing I was wondering about, uh, in the work that you're doing is your work with prisoners. Yeah. Um, how are you getting any traction with the Federal Bureau of Prisoners on things like uh, uh, provision of health care and gender affirming care, that sort of thing? A little bit. Um, we did have the and I'll, I can put this in the chat for you. Um, we did manage, uh, I guess, uh, just about a year ago to have um, the Bureau of Prisons provide the first gender-affirming surgeries for someone in their custody. Um, and I, it is my hope, it is my belief that more are in the offing. Um, I think, you know, both the Department of Justice uh, and the BOP itself have ultimately been forced to acknowledge that gender-affirming care is medically necessary. And so under the Eighth Amendment, they have an obligation to provide it. Um, and, you know, getting any health care in prison can be a struggle. So um, this is no different. Um, one of the major struggles that we encountered was uh, they, you know, because it's a, a government agency, they have a whole set of procurement protocols that they have to follow. And so hiring the surgeon required a months long process of um, 
putting up the request for proposals and bidding and then, you know, engaging the, engaging the surgeon. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it was a whole Michigas, but, but ultimately it, it did happen. So, um, I think, you know, this is another place where the political wins matter a lot. And, you know, the law is is not ever a foregone conclusion. Just because something's in writing doesn't mean that's how it's going to happen. Um, all of these laws, in order to be carried out, right, require the sort of quotidian actions of hundreds of people in a bureaucracy this large. And so it's not just a matter of does BOP say that you can get gender affirming care in prison? It's a matter of, you know, is there a medical professional in that particular prison who's actually competent to make that determination, who's willing to make that determination, who's willing to make the recommendation, um, right? And that's frankly the case with with all medical care, right? Is there a doctor? Is it possible for you to see a doctor? Uh, for diabetes? Is there a doctor there who is available to see you? Is there a doctor there who's available to see you who has enough expertise in that particular thing? Are they able to manage the transport to take you out to an outside hospital if that's a thing that you need, right? It's There are so many things involved in offering healthcare uh, to people who have no liberty that um, it, it's just not a straightforward process, even if the law itself is very good. Is this any different with private prisons? I I don't know. I mean, I mean they're pretty much subject to the same laws, right? It's subject just, to the same laws, um, but yeah. the federal prisons are not private. So there's no private federal prisons, not to my knowledge. Oh, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Hmm, that's interesting. I've always wondered about private prisons. It seems um, kind of weird to have that as a profit center. Um, you, have you have you worked with prisoners who are in private prisons? Do you see any difference in incarceration in a private prison versus a, a like a federal prison? or? A... Um, okay. First thing is that the BOP did used to have some private prisons, but they ended that uh, relationship in 2022. Um, I have not worked with anyone who is in a private prison, to my knowledge. <clears throat> um, I know that private prisons really damaged um, the conditions of prisons generally because their whole um, MO was to reduce costs and because they were in the same sort of uh, ecosystem, there was a lot of state pressure to for non-private prisons to also reduce costs, which <clears throat> diminished the quality of food and medical care and access to dignity um, at all of the prisons because it sort of just lowered the general bar. Um, but I, I think a lot of places, <laughs> somewhat ironically, um, one of the strongest remaining unions in a lot of places is is the unions for prison guards. And so I think that um, actually kept a lot of um, prison systems from interacting with private prisons. Yeah, Texas has many uh, privately operated prisons. And we had a recent uh, move in the Texas legislature to provide air conditioning in the Texas prisons because they had, with this recent uh, extreme summer that we had, the prisons were, you know, maybe 110, 120 degrees, and there's no air conditioning. So the House of, Leg uh, of the Texas legislature uh, uh, said that you have to provide air conditioning, but they didn't agree to provide any money for the program. So we have a law, but uh, it says, well, you have to do air conditioning, but we're not going to give you any money. So that seems to be common among a lot of prison systems in this country. You, you, you have some laws that says protect the prisoners, but they don't really 
give you the uh, means to do that. Um, I know that um, uh, there's an attorney that I've actually worked with in the past who um, successfully sued over that issue because people were dying from heat in Texas prisons. This must have been about 10 years ago. Um, and that he won that suit. So I know that there has been at least um, case law that requires um, Texas state prisons to provide um, to provide climate control um, of, of some kind. I don't know how or whether that has actually been funded, um, but that was a, I know that was a successful Eighth Amendment action um, because, you know, they kept killing people oh. from... Oh. Sorry, I, <laughs> I was trying to say the... Uh... Texas prisons have about 30% of the prisons are fully air conditioned and other rest have either partial or no air conditioning and no efforts being made to improve that. So, uh, you know, there have been some victories in some prisons, but I, I think a lot of it may revolve around us. Some of these pr prisons are actually considered country club prisons. That's where the white collar criminals go. And it's, not surprisingly, those are the ones that have good air conditioning. I I would uh, hesitate to call any prison a country club prison, but um, I hope that I I would hope that any place where people are confined is appropriately climate controlled. Um, I put the a link in the chat for you. It's just the first link I could find about uh, Brian's. Uh, are you invo involved uh, with Leonard Peltier? I am. I am one of his many, many attorneys. Um, and we're, you know, trying to do all different kinds of advocacy to try to bring him home. We just passed the 49th anniversary of his arrest in Canada. Um, you know, he has spent almost 50 years in prison for a crime that it's kind of everyone knows at this point he did not commit. Um, there's unbelievable, overwhelming evidence of uh, astounding constitutional violations at every phase of his uh, arrest and conviction, um, every phase of his post-conviction appeals. Um, he has been treated terribly while he's been confined. Um, you know, I'm really concerned for him. But my hope is that, um, you know, fingers crossed, Kinehora, inshallah, my hope is that he will rejoin us on this side of the wall soon. Why has it been so hard to um, to get him released? Because he's an indigenous man who was accused of having killed two FBI agents and the FBI and federal government have a long, if not particularly precise memory. There have been a couple of times when um, it looked like he was going to be pardoned or not pardoned. It looked like he, he was uh, going to get clemency. And um, that just, you know, at the 23rd and a half hour, um, that, that just didn't come through. Um, because I think it's, it's a big, it's a big political lift for people who, for people who have and care about having power. You uh, have mentioned something to us uh, before the interview about um, the protection of vulnerable groups, and uh, I know that it's. It's been an issue. It's been hard to sustain protection of vulnerable groups, sort of generally. Uh, what what should we be doing? What can we be doing to to try to protect those those groups better than we do now? I mean i I would encourage you to know your neighbors and organize with your neighbors, um, right? Because all of this stuff really is, as much as it's, um, 
as much as there are federal laws and as much as there are like giant national groups that advocate for resource extraction and anti-trans bills and all kind you know all kinds of laws that are super damaging at very high levels the fact is that protection really happens in communities and um building building strong you know school boards is um and like strong libraries i think is a really good step um I don't think the law is the solution. I think the law is often the problem. <laughs> and uh, I think, um, you know, we all have to sort of struggle where we are, right? Um, the particular tool I have is the law, but I do not think that it is the most effective or the best tool. And sometimes I think it might be the worst tool. Um, and I think that really the place that we that we see meaningful change, sometimes with the support of lawyers, is in community mass movements. Um, so I would sure recommend, you know, if you wanna call your senators, call your senators, and if you wanna vote, go ahead and vote. But I, I think that the the place that the meaningful, meaningful change happens and meaningful protection happens is really in, in those smaller scale interpersonal kinds of things. You know, it's like that Diane De Prima poem about how it's going to take all of us pushing at this thing from all sides. Um, this, wherever seems be, this seems to be an area where Republicans have, have it maybe better figured out than Democrats. I was really shocked by the attacks on school boards last year and the year before where, you know, random people would show up and scream at them about banning books and, um, and I guess other other things. And, um, you know, if your school board gets overrun by people who, you know, if, if, who, who, you know, who want to, who want to ban books and, 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 and bar certain topics from the classroom, uh, it's very, it may be very hard to claim it back. I think this, um, tactic uh, with school boards has actually been in place for a, quite a long time. I was actually just looking at um, a book called Education and Power by Michael Apple, and it was written, it's copyrighted 1995. Oh, it was first published in 82. I think that he talks about um, taking over school boards in that book. Um, I think the school board thing, education has long been understood as a primary battleground, right? I mean, we saw this during, um, we saw I this after the, I was thinking of the Scopes monkey trials, you know, that were- like, uh, You know, the, what was the play? Um, Inherit the Wind. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, and and it's also a very good example of how the law is not actually the 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 solution, right? Because in the wake of Brown v. Board, which you know mandated uh, school integration, what we ended up seeing was the rise of of private segregated education. Um, but I think th this issue of taking over local government is certainly not a it's not a new strategy. Uh, the well, uh, the Moms for Liberty uh, group is, uh, you know, bankrolled basically by uh, the hard right of the uh, Republican Party. And they've been involved in many takeovers in uh, local school school boards in the last couple of years. And that kind of organization is an extreme danger to education. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this has been going on. I don't think it's at all new, right? This is the Phyllis Schlafly playbook. You know, <laughs> I never mm. heard of her until one night I was driving across Arizona. This was in my folk singing days in the late 1970s. And I was driving across Arizona. It's late at night. And I've got some radio station coming from Chicago or somewhere by a skip, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And this woman was going on and on about how abstinence worked for generations. And I s- sat there and I thought, well, this is a, this is at least a reason to sing all these old English folk songs in which the girl always ends up pregnant because it proves it didn't work for generations. It's the first time I saw a practical use to singing folk songs. <laughs> well, I think that you can uh, you can organize to to create cruelty to do cruel things as I think we see happening now and you can organize in service of kindness which I think is probably what we need right now and I think the law is incidental to that I mean the law can be used in ways that are cruel or kind but how do you the mystery to me with the Republican project now are this what they call MAGA Republicans or whatever, is that there does seem to be a, a strong sense of cruelty within the their thinking. And I don't really know how to derail that. And I'm not I I can't imagine any court case that would force people to be kind rather than cruel, you know? Uh and I'm I'm kind of following on to what you were saying before about how you have to work with your community and you have to I mean, these are things that we have to do outside of law and politics, I think. I agree. I don't uh, I don't think that I share values with most of these folks in a way that would allow me to understand their behavior or motivations. Um, but I can tell you certainly there's absolutely no law that can compel <laughs> uh, that can compel um, affect. All we can do is um, encourage or punish certain kinds of behavior, and I'm not particularly keen on trying to punish people. So, um, you know, I don't think I just don't think the law is going to save us here. And politics certainly isn't going to save us. Did Did you start up when you know when you when you decided to go to law school? What did, did you think you would be able to that the law would be less limited than it is in 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 its effect, efficacy? Honestly, I'm not sure what I what exactly I thought. I I think I I did have a little bit of a misapprehension about what the law was. Um, I had initially gone to school for education policy and curriculum development, and um, then. The first week I was in law school, 9-11, or in uh, grad school, 9-11 happened. And then by the time I was done with grad school in this education program, um, we didn't have a very well-funded public education system anymore because we were having the war on terror instead. So I ended up um, not working in education. And at some point, about five to 10 years after that, I decided to go to law school because I I think that at the time I thought I could do legal advocacy within the within the field of education um, for like school systems, um, which was not actually what I ended up doing at all. Um, but I don't think I I thought of law as more of a policy tool at that time. Um so I can't really, <laughs> I don't know if I, if I fully understood um, what, what the law was or how it worked or what, if any, relationship it might have to my own vision of a just society. It's so how would you describe the law now? I, I mean, I say, I say to my students all the time, the law is never a set of facts. It's always an argument. It's just interesting to me because I think when I was in college, which would be in the early 70s, I really had no concept of lawyers other than, you know, corporate guys and guys who made wills and so forth. And one of the great surprises of my life has been watching the rise of academic lawyers who are really quite activist in formulating, you know, the advent of the internet has encouraged a lot of people to think about what law should be for a new technology and, and to try to write laws that will 
push policy in certain directions. And so that's been a great surprise, the, the rise of activist lawyers in things like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and these, these other places that, you know, really seek to seek to make better policy by making better law. And then, um, but I, I did, one of my college roommates actually did go to law school and, and she, I saw her when she, I think I last saw her, she was two or three years into law school and she was sort of shaking her head and saying, you know, I went to law school because I wanted to change the system from within. And I now realize that in law school, the pressure is so intense to conform that, that by the time you graduate, you've, that has been you know, sort of driven out of you. And I'm sort of pleased. I looked her up a few, couple of years ago and discovered that she's been a very well respected in elder law in the place she lives. And that seems like a good outcome for her, really, nice. given how she started. So I actually am the opposite. I would say the opposite in both ways or on both counts. Um, I did not, I was not familiar with corporate lawyers or guys who write wills. The only lawyer I knew was my grandpa. And he had gone to law school before you had to go to undergrad first. And he went to law school for free at night at the YMCA in Boston and then became a labor lawyer. And so he was this very scrappy, um, this was my dad's dad, Wendy. I, I was going to, I was just going to say, you know, I have, I've, I've known Andy, your, your father for 50 years and I had no idea that his father was a lawyer, but my God, it makes sense when you listen to him talk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it tracks, right? Um, so he was the only lawyer I knew, and he was a very scrappy union guy. And I didn't know that there were people who became lawyers to make lots of money because I'd never met one of those. Um, the other thing is for your roommate, her commentary on all that pressure to conform. Um, I mean, I guess this, depending on when it was, you know, I can see that happening. But to, to be quite honest, I know that that is still very much the case in law schools. But it, it does baffle me because I defy anyone to read cases on uh, confessions coerced by torture in this country. I defy anyone to read Miranda v. Arizona and come out of law school thinking that policing has any relationship to the rule of law or that the rule of law has any relationship to justice. Um, it astonishes me that anyone can come out of law school and not be a political radical after looking at the legal history of this country. I think you just blew my mind. But I, I get it. I totally get it. You know, I was, when I took aptitude tests, they all said that I should be a lawyer. And I noticed that people I knew who were following that path didn't seem very happy about it. And I chose not to go there. Um, actually, since then, I've thought maybe I should have, uh, you know, for because I could potentially be doing some good, which, you know, you're obviously doing. Um, do you... Have you had second thoughts about being an attorney or continuing to be an attorney? Or are you going to soldier on? I'm going to soldier on. I would love it if, you know, as I said, I would love for this job to become obsolete. Um, I would much rather sit around making sweaters and jam all day than, <laughs> than uh, you know, trying to educate judges. I would, I would much rather do... Um, all kinds of work. Um, but as long as this is work that needs to be done, I'm very happy to do it. Um, I, I really love my clients. I love my communities. I love being able to show up for them. This is the skill set that I have. As I said, I don't think it is the be all end all. It's certainly not the lever for social change that I wish it were. Um, but if I can act as a shield between um, my clients who are doing the heavy lifting of social change and, you know, the oppressive power of the state, then I'm very happy to do that. It feels to me like you're doing a really excellent job of it. 
Well, I hope so. I think that probably remains to be seen. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I enjoy my work. I wish there were less of it. Well, we are pretty close to the end of our hour. Uh, do you have any final words for us? Hmm, yes. Uh, there is never a reason to talk to police or answer their questions before speaking to a lawyer. And your right not to do so is protected by the Constitution. Excellent. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Maura. This has been an excellent conversation. You're very welcome. Let's talk again. All right. Thanks. It's nice to see you, Wendy. Yeah, you too. Right. Bye. Okay, thanks. Thank you. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.